Welcome to Pazina Perspectives, brought to you by Pazina Investment Management, a global value manager known for our commitment to fundamental research and disciplined value investing. This podcast is presented by Pazina Investment Management LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor, and is intended for institutional investors only. The views expressed reflect the current views of Pazina as of the date hereof and are subject to change. There is no guarantee that any projection, forecast, or opinion in this material will be realized. Past performance is not indicative of future results. In the UK, this podcast is for professional clients only. This marketing communication is presented by Pazina Investment Management Limited, which is an appointed representative of Vittoria and Partners LLP. Vittoria and Partners LLP is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In today's episode, we ask several of Pazina's portfolio managers to share their favorite stock ideas for the upcoming year. Hello and welcome to the podcast. We're beginning today by speaking with our founder and co-chief investment officer, Rich Pazina, who is also a portfolio manager for our U.S. large cap value and U.S. best ideas strategies. So, Rich... You and I have been working together for more than two decades now, and I have to say, I always love to hear your thoughts when you're excited about an investment opportunity. So tell me, what is your favorite stock right now? Well, that's an easy one this quarter, Citibank. The Citi franchise is a bit different than the other banking franchises. Citibank primarily has a corporate client customer base for deposits, and that is different than a retail customer base because you you have you can't pay no interest on corporate accounts because corporate treasurers will never accept that. Um, having said that, City has had lots and lots of problems that are regulatory, and they did finally announce that um, that they thought their expense structure was peaking. The expense structure is caused by all the remediation they have to do for um, regulatory purposes. We think that the, the substantial expenses will start to come off over the next few years, and Citibank's valuation just made no sense um, relative to the franchise size. It continues to sell for a giant discount to book value, seven or eight times current earnings, and is massively undervalued compared to other financials and compared to the value of the franchise. Thanks, Rich. Up next, I am joined by Akhil Subramanian, who is a portfolio manager on our emerging market strategies. Akhil, I want to welcome you back to the podcast. You and John Getz recently recorded a fantastic episode with us entitled Finding Value in China. And as a side note, I would encourage anyone who hasn't listened to that to please check it out right after this one. But getting back to our topic at hand, I do want to hear about your favorite stock right now. Yeah, look, one favorite is always a hard thing because I love so many different things in our portfolio. You know, before I came in here, I was just reading a note from a sell-side analyst on one of the companies we own, um, and it ended with, you know, there is hardly any optimism in our view in the share price. And it was funny because I think what the sentence should have read was there's hardly any optimism despite improving fundamentals. You know, a lot of what we own is undergoing pain, working through the pain, and despite improving fundamentals, there is still hardly any optimism. You know, I can recall, you know, two of our travel stocks, Trip.com and Galaxy. Galaxy is a casino in Macau. Both are really recovering from the post-COVID shock. And, you know, it's not that there is hardly any optimism, but certainly not the kind of optimism 
you would see if you saw the kind of improving fundamentals that they have. But let me think about a favorite stock and, and go to Alibaba, because I think the, the, so the same thing holds true here. I think there is not that much optimism, despite the fundamentals improving. And just to give you an idea of why I like Alibaba so much, you know, the market cap is around 190 billion, depending on the time of recording. It can be plus or minus 10%. Um, they have 60 billion in cash. They have about 60 to 70 billion investment portfolio. And so if you exclude all their cash and their investments, the operating enterprise value of the company is around um, 80 or 90 billion. And in the last four quarters, they generated 25 billion of free cash flow. And, you know, I think the phrase hardly any optimism despite improving fundamentals is just highlighted there. It's trading at a very, very low multiple of trailing 12 months free cash flow, possibly a lower multiple of forward free cash flow. And it's just that given the sentiment around China and some of the stuff that happened in the last quarter about canceling a spin-off of one of their divisions, there really is no optimism. So I feel like Alibaba is set up really well to outperform. Akhil, thank you so much for that. It's always a pleasure. My next guest is Ben Silver, Portfolio Manager for our U.S. large, mid, and small cap strategies, as well as our global strategies. Ben, you know what I want to know. As we continue into 2024, what equity opportunity is most interesting to you right now? I think that when you look at some of the interesting things that are, that are happening in the market, it's really in the um, healthcare space. And there's a lot of uh, contention going on there. There's a lot of controversy going on there. And one of our new positions uh, that we've added is really interesting and really cheap, and that's uh, Baxter, uh, one of the largest manufacturers of uh, medical equipment and supplies in the United States. And they report in, in four different uh, segments. Um, the first one is uh, medical products. Uh, medical products is their, their largest segment. This is the, where their infusion pumps, as well as IV fluids, uh, resides. They have a 70% share, so real dominant share uh, in the marketplace. Uh, the next segment is uh, healthcare systems. This was uh, mostly the Hill-Rom acquisition that they made recently. Uh, Hill-Rom is a manufacturer of hospital beds and other uh, equipment that goes into the hospital rooms. Um, and that's a, a significant division in, in their business as well. Then they have pharma, which produces um, mostly generics for anesthesia. anesthesia. Uh, and then their renal systems, which is uh, dialysis systems, mostly for home use. Uh, there's been a litany of problems uh, with this company, uh, and they've had to absorb costs of over a billion dollars. So uh, inflation has, has really hurt them. Uh, in the, um, uh, in the uh, medical products business. They've had logistical problems in the uh, hospital bed business. Uh, and then on the uh, renal care, uh, they've, uh, the, again, it's the GLP-1 drugs that people are questioning uh, the future of those businesses if, if everybody's taking these drugs. And then overarching, there's just been, uh, in terms of the, the medical uh, world, there's just been a, a reduction of procedures that has not gone back to where we were pre-COVID. Uh, so when we, when we look at these issues, uh, we do think that they're uh, uh, mostly temporary. On the inflation side, although they, they've not been able to pass through these costs, it's because they have these large contracts with what's called group purchasing organizations that extend several years. But as soon as these contracts uh, come up or roll over, 
we've, we're highly confident they'll be able to push through these costs as it's pretty critical to, to uh, functioning of a hospital. Uh, we do think that uh, the logistics is, is being worked on as well as uh, there's new uh, cost containment plans in the businesses. Uh, and then lastly, we think the overreaction on the renal side of the business to the GLP-1 has just been excessive. Uh, the stock is down uh, over 50% in the last couple of years and uh, we think is a very cheap company. Thanks, Ben. We turn next to Evan Fox, a co-portfolio manager for our U.S. mid, small, and smid-cap value strategies, as well as our global small-cap product. Evan, you've been a PM on our U.S. small-cap value strategy for about eight and a half years, and you are something of a small-cap generalist on our research team. What's your favorite small-cap idea right now? One name that's really interesting is Hooker Furniture, which is a residential furniture company that's really well positioned for earnings growth and for stock price appreciation. They're a leading capital light manufacturer of medium to higher end furniture across a range of brands and markets, but they outsource most of their manufacturing to Asia. Over the last couple of years, they've dealt with two main headwinds. One was an industry issue. You had a range of supply chain disruptions, high shipping costs, and needing to move all your manufacturing uh, to, in Asia because a lot of it had been in China, had to move to Vietnam because of tariffs. And then as you had these supply chain disruptions, as they then alleviated and we worked through that, there was a corresponding destocking and excess supply hit industry volumes. The other issue was the 2016 acquisition of Home Meridian which sold products to Costco, Macy's, and big box stores, as opposed to smaller furniture companies. It had always been a lower margin business, but when they realized how high some of the return costs were and how high the freight costs were and how that impacted profitability, they actually exited or repositioned much of the business. Now, the core hooker branded business is stabilizing from the destocking issues, and the home meridian business finally reached profitability for the first time in over two years last quarter. And the company is incredibly cheap with 20% of its market cap in cash, and it's trading around seven times our view of normalized earnings. I think what's especially interesting is this is a great example of a small cap company that isn't fully understood. Naively, people look at it and think that it has much lower margins in history and is poorly positioned. But in reality, if you break it apart into these two businesses, you see that one has done well and should continue to, and the other was going through quite a turnaround. So that's why we're quite positive on this as we enter 2024. Thanks, Evan. Next, I want to welcome Jason Doctor, who is a co-portfolio manager on our international small cap focused value strategy. Jason, welcome to the podcast. We've written before about the fact that international small caps are often under-allocated because they tend to have thin analyst coverage. But here at Pazina, we have the research depth to try to find those undiscovered gems in the international small cap space. What opportunity do you want to highlight as a current favorite? Yeah, so an idea that I'm really excited about now that we own in both our international small cap product as well as our Japanese product is Sawai Pharmaceuticals. And it's really a fascinating story. Um, Takashi and I were just in Japan. Um, we met with them. We met with all of the peers, all of the competitors back in December. And really, the generics industry in Japan has both been a success, but, but the seeds of its success have, have led to some of the issues we see today that, the, that are now being solved, which is part of why we're so excited about it. You know, the Japanese farm industry has really been a success in terms of 
increasing the amount of drugs in Japan that are taken that are true generics. But part of the programs that the government undertook to encourage that change actually have actually had some unintended consequences. And really we're at a point today where we're seeing the government start to come up with solutions to those issues that they created, and we think Sawai is really going to benefit from that. Uh, starting in about 2014, the Japanese government changed the way that they remunerated generics manufacturers in Japan, um, really trying to drive down the cost of generics. Unfortunately, that also incentivized a lot of very small subscale players who drove down the prices, reduced the profitability of players like Sawai. Sawai is actually the largest generic manufacturer in Japan. Um, and, and as that continued for the next 10 years, you actually started to see some of those smaller players, because their profitability was quite low, unfortunately start to take some shortcuts on good manufacturing processes. Um, and really that came to a head in 2022 and 2023, where there are several high profile examples of um, those generic drugs actually having some accidents. Actually, unfortunately, some people died as a result of it. Um, and uh, the flip side of that, though, is that now the government has recognized that they need to make sure that the generic drug manufacturers are compensated well enough that they can afford to maintain those high-level good manufacturing processes that they want. Additionally, because so much of that capacity had been underinvested in during these times when the margins were too low, um, you're actually now short drugs. The government needs to incentivize large players like Sawai to add capacity into the market. So we think all of that adds up to, you know, Sawai may not be able to return to its profitability level sort of pre-2013, but we do think um, current level of profitability is unsustainable and the government is going to make sure that that improves itself. Um, so we're really excited. That we're re it's really cheap. Um, we think the government is going to announce things uh, sometime in the first quarter of this year. We're not really catalyst investors, as you know, but um, you know this is a situation where really it is being driven by government pricing regulation, but it does have some of those characteristics we really like, which is you've had the capital stock in that industry depleted for years because the returns were so bad. And the question was always, well, what, what's going to fix those returns? Because the way the government policy worked was so, was so sort of aggressive and negative in trying to drive pricing down. And the government has now kind of come out and said, like, we kind of overdid it. Let's fix it. Um, and so we think Sawai is really going to be a beneficiary of that. Even, even if you know, we don't even need to get that pricing back to the historic kind of levels that you saw, we really just need to see it sort of stabilize, normalize the new capacity they're building to sort of be accepted by the market. Um, so it's something that's a really exciting idea. It's, it's really cheap, um, ultimately. And that's what we like here at Pazina. Yes, indeed. A good opportunity that's cheap. That's our favorite. Thanks a lot, Jason. So our next guest is Miklos Vassarelli, a co-portfolio manager for our European strategies. Miklos, my understanding is that despite any macroeconomic volatility in Europe, as value investors, we continue to find company-specific opportunities. What's one of your favorite stocks in the European portfolio? So it's a hard question, just given that there are a lot of stocks in the portfolio that we really like, or I really like. But I think when push comes to shove, um, my top pick in the portfolio is Bank of Ireland Group. So for those of you that aren't familiar with Bank of Ireland Group, it's one of the two dominant banks in Ireland. It has roughly a 30% market share of loans and deposits in that market. And I think what makes the stock so interesting is that there have been two really favorable developments that really will help Bank of Ireland going forward that have occurred over the last several years. 
So the first is there's been massive consolidation in the Irish banking market. So two of Bank of Ireland's competitors, uh, KBC Group, as well as Ulster Bank, announced that they're fully exiting the Irish market. So overnight, the market's going from a five banking market to a three bank market and presents all those benefits in terms of less competition, consolidation, what have you. Uh, but then on top of that, um, overnight, it's basically 20% of new loan origination market share and 15% of deposit market share was just left up for grabs for the three remaining incumbent banks to grab, including Bank of Ireland Group. So a huge positive from an industry structure standpoint. And obviously, as bank with Bank of Ireland being one of the leading players in that market, uh, they should be an outsized beneficiary of that. Secondly, as part of those exits, uh, KBC Group actually agreed to sell its mortgage loan book to Bank of Ireland at a very attractive discounted price. And you know what we really like about that deal is that not only did Bank of Ireland pay a low price for it, and it increases the revenue pool of Bank of Ireland's mortgage portfolio by about one-third, but also because Bank of Ireland already had those capabilities to oversee that portfolio, it actually only added a de minimis amount of cost. So, you know, said a le- another way, there's tremendous you know operating leverage uh, from from that transaction. So, aside from those two kind of company slash market specific tailwinds for Bank of Ireland, I mean, I think the company is just well positioned more broadly. So, you know, it, it's got a very very clean balance sheet. It's got a large excess provision position, which can, which well positions it to deal with any potential future credit losses. Um, on top of that, the group is a big beneficiary of higher interest rates, just given the strength of its deposit franchise, as well as its low loan-to-deposit ratio. And of course, as I mentioned before, it will benefit from the consolidated structure of the market. Um, lastly, you know, I think the group's also very well positioned to return a lot of capital to shareholders. So by our math, we think Bank of Ireland can return anywhere from 12 to 15% of market cap a year back to shareholders in the form of dividends and buybacks. So even if the stock doesn't re-rate, we're getting paid you know, 12 to 15% per annum just to hold the stock, uh, which in my view is very attractive just given the quality of the business. Um, and then lastly, just the valuation. So Bank of Ireland, no matter how you cut it, looks very cheap. So it trades at five times forward earnings, a huge discount to tangible book value, um, all for a business that we think is capable of earning a mid-teen return on equity. And of course, I mentioned we are getting that 12 to 15% cash back you know, every year. So re- really, that's why I like Bank of Ireland. Thanks, Miklos. We're going to wrap up today with my final guest, who we always love to have on the podcast, our co-chief investment officer, John Getz, who is also a co-portfolio manager on our European, global, and international strategies. John, welcome back. In your roles, you evaluate many, many investment opportunities. Tell me one you're really interested in right now. I'm going to talk about a European company that uh, we own in a couple of our portfolios. Uh, just to set it up, uh, the company is called AMS Osram. It's actually a semiconductor and lighting company. 
Uh, I'll go into that in a little bit more detail in a minute. But I wanted to to set this up by by just saying, what are we trying to do with each of these investments? Uh, we obviously take advantage of uncertainty and pain. Uh, we're looking for companies where that pain and uncertainty is a temporary phenomenon. We also want to find a company that's well positioned in the businesses they operate, and it has some kind of downside protection. I think AMS Osram is a good illustration of a unique, uh, grossly undervalued uh, situation in a company. And, and some of the pain was 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 their their cause, uh, but some of the pain was caused by forces outside of their control. And I think it makes an interesting example. Uh, so let me just describe uh, the fact that AMS Osram is a combination of two companies. AMS which was historically a semiconductor company, focusing primarily on sensors, uh, sensors for everything, uh, sensors for proximity, for light, et cetera. So just think of it as a semiconductor company that acquired a lighting company called Osram. Osram uh, has long been a European leader in lighting, but specifically for automotive. So if you were an automotive company, whether you're BMW or Porsche or Mercedes, and you're looking for leading-edge lighting in your vehicle, both in headlamps historically, but now elsewhere in the vehicle, Osram would have come to your mind as a, as a Tier 1 supplier. Uh, back in 2019, the management at AMS uh, thought strategically about the future and, and thought, hey, uh, what's going to happen in the lighting industry is it's going to go digital. It's going to go to semiconductors. At the same time, AMS, which has a history in the semiconductor business, was looking for broadening their uh, exposure to the automotive industry. So in a way, I think the AMS management rightly identified in 2019 that it might be a good strategic fit to combine their historic skills with the historic skills of Osram. Now, let's just talk about what happened there. They basically did an acquisition that valued Osram at around 4 billion euros. Uh, we would say as, as cheapskate value people that 4 billion was, was, might have been a little rich for what we might have paid, but, but at least in the vicinity of the long-term value of the, of the lighting business of, of Osram, uh, where, where they have leadership uh, in automotive. Uh, AMS historically had a good business, in selling proximity and light sensors, primarily into the consumer space, but even within that, uh, big business inside the iPhone. So they had uh, a business with the iPhone, uh, the iWatch, and, and other semiconductor applications. Because of the growth of semiconductors in both consumer and auto, they were also ready to embark on an expansion of making more semiconductors, whether it's a light-emitting diode or micro LED, which is where we're going in the future, or a sensor, you need a fab to make these. And they decided to up their game and build a billion dollar plus fab in Malaysia uh, with eight inch waver, wafers, thus reducing the cost. So let me just say in 2019, it looked this way. They're making a big acquisition. They think it's strategic. They're upping their game in terms of competitive capacity, and they already have some business with, with, uh, with, with, with the iPhone. What could go wrong? Well, basically everything went wrong. So what happened was um, 
the auto business, as you know, in COVID, went into a real downturn in units, massive supply, logistics problems. So the historic Osram business started falling like a stone. But more importantly, some of their products on the iPhone got obsoleted or hit an air pocket because they probably have some good products for the future of the iPhone. But some of their products hit a real air pocket. So here now you have a company that borrowed some money to make an acquisition with massive falls in revenue and profit in both, uh, both businesses. So as a consequence, the stock, which was in the 40 euro range, uh, plummeted. Make a long story short, we bought the shares under $2 uh, per share. So how did that happen? Well, we did some initial research. The company screens up, and we start to learn about the business. And, and we figure out that, yeah, you know what? Uh, probably the, the Osram business is well positioned for the long run automotive. More of automotive lighting will be digital. There will be more content on an EV, on an electric vehicle, than there will on an ICE vehicle. So, so Osram pretty well positioned. Meanwhile, the AMS business with this big new fab in Malaysia was looking much more problematic. In fact, it got so scary that basically we said it has too much debt for the trough in the cash flow and the earnings uh, that we see them needing to encounter. So when we first took a look at the company, said, you know what, this company might need to re, uh, be recapitalized. They have a good business position, but too much debt, not enough downside protection. So what happened was we decided, after messing around a little bit, that, that we would wait uh, for a better entry opportunity. That entry opportunity happened because the company decided to do a massive recapitalization, uh, basically doubling the, the share count, raising $800 uh, million in, in, in equity, but also restructuring the debt. It was that opportunity, which then, of course, increases the share count, cuts the share price, uh, that we found an interesting opportunity where basically you were buying a company for around $4 billion dollars, of total value, which is the value of the Osram business just by itself. No credit for the new fab they're building or the historic sensor business that AMS had, had run. So now let's look out the, the windscreen, as I like to say, instead of the rear mirror. Now we're sitting on a company that has the potential to be a continued leader in the automotive business, where, where that business alone probably is worth $4 billion plus, and at the same time, uh, we're, we're getting this exposure to a new fab that has an opportunity, particularly in micro LED. If you, if you listen to the tech analysts, they say that most screens, uh, you know, most of our visual optics in whether it's an iPhone, an iWatch, or, or other screens, that, that ultimately these things will be micro LED where, where, where AMS uh, has a good position. Probably the first opportunities in the iWatch uh, for them to have additional content. But, but to, to say the least, we believe that a billion-dollar fab uh, and their other production facilities are not worthless. Uh, so what we're doing here is we're buying a stock that's worth about 2 billion euros. You also have debt. But when we look at it, we're saying, what is that market capitalization? Call it $4 billion. What are you getting for that? And, and basically what we saw is we're getting both a lighting leader in automotive plus the upside in, in AMS. What does this illustrate? It illustrates that if you wait for the right capitalization opportunity, you might get a real deal when a company massively dilutes the existing shareholder base. Uh, and if you wait for that, you get a good entry opportunity at, at a low price. So to put it succinctly, 
Uh, AMS Osram ran into three significant issues, downturn in automotive units, the, the uh, air pocket in the Apple business, and then their own decision to expand dramatically uh, in, in a new billion-dollar fab uh, created the opportunity to buy a business that we think, uh, if you look at the whole business, is worth in the 8 billion euro range for roughly 2 billion euro in equity, plus, of course, the debt. But you're buying the business at, at basically half price if you look at the total market uh, valuation today, including the debt. Uh, that, that, I'll put it a different way. That's an opportunity to buy a business that's well-positioned for the future, dealing with temporary problems at around five times what we think a reasonably conservative estimate of earnings is five years from now. So in our normal nomenclature, we're buying it at five times normal earnings. Uh, so again, stress, uncertainty, and some external factors uh, do create opportunities for deep value, as is the case in AMS Osram. Thanks, John. And I want to thank each of the portfolio managers that joined me today to tell us about the stocks they're finding most interesting right now. We remain excited about the opportunities ahead for value investors in 2024, and we look forward to sharing more on Pazina Perspectives. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Pazina Perspectives. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And for more insights on value investing, visit our website at www.pazina.com. That's www.pzena.com.